On GDC Podcast episode 25, we have Justin Keenan, writer and narrative designer on Zaum's instant classic Disco Elysium. He talks about writing interesting characters, choice design, and the writing process at Zaum. This episode was recorded live during GDC Showcase earlier this year and is brought to you by Exola. Back in a sec. I'm your co-host, Chris Graft. We have an amazing guest coming up who I'm extremely excited to have on. But I'm also excited that my co-host, Alyssa, is here too. Hey, Alyssa. Oh, thanks. Hello. (laughs) Um, I'm Alyssa Macklin, and I co-host this podcast sometimes. I don't know why I say sometimes. I've done every episode, but here we are. Getting started and moving towards uh, talking to our guest today. Uh, before we do, I just want to mention um, we will be taking some questions uh, from chat. So if you drop them into that questions tab in your little chat box on the right side of your screen, best way to get them seen. Um, and I'll be keeping an eye on that throughout. So with all that out of the way, let's get to our next guest. Um, he has, along with his team, won honors from the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, the Game Awards, and our very own Game Developers Choice Awards, among others. He is an author, editor, and teacher the writer and narrative designer on a little game called Disco Elysium. Elysium, oh my goodness, from Studio Zom. Uh, Let's welcome Justin Keenan. Hi, uh, I'm Justin. Um, I'm a writer at Studio Zom. Um, and this is my first GDC and my first podcast. So that's all great. And I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Get them all out of the way at once. It's great. Welcome. What? Glad to have you. What? This is your first? Oh, geez. Yeah. Um, so you have no idea how a well-run podcast, you know, <laughs> operates. So uh, this is good. No, um, thanks so much for joining us. Let's get into just let's start with your background. You don't have like uh, before, you know, releasing, you know, and working on this incredible uh, game, Disco Elysium. Did you have any like, did you ship any games prior to that? No, Um most of us, I, I don't think there were more than like one or two people with actual game dev experience on the team before we mm-hmm. made Disco. Um, and I, you know, come from like a literary background. So I was, you know, like a writer and editor um, before I joined the team. Um, and so I know most of the writing team have backgrounds as like fiction writers or poets or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of a um, a sideways journey for all of us. Yeah. So that, uh, I don't, I think, I think I was an English major, Chris, you were also an English major, right? Mm-hmm. So I wonder the, the academic link there between the people who made Disco Elysium and the people who play Disco Elysium, it's like that handshaking meme, <laughs> just English majors <laughs> all around literary fans. It's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, um, I, I had read that. Um, and I think that it was, um, um, Kurvitz, sorry, his first name is Robert. Yeah, Robert. I read an interview with him and um, it was interesting how, and I wonder if your viewpoint about Zalm is the same, that it's it's not like a game studio or do you consider it a game studio or is it more of like an art, like an artist collective or, uh, or what, do you, what do you think? Yeah, um, I, you know, I'm really attracted to that idea mm-hmm. of it too, that, you know, this is... Um, and, and this isn't just the writers, like the the artists and the the musicians who like worked on the game are all super talented. And I think it is 
like something special about the way the studio works and about the way like we go about making things is that, um, you know, we have these people from all these different disciplines who are trying to find a new way to like apply those disciplines in a, uh, a way that also has like mm-hmm. excitement and integrity to it. And so like, you know, we're all kind of trying to figure out like, well, how do we as writers or artists or musicians like make this game together? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's like a big part of the appeal of it for us. Yeah. So how do you all make a game together? Is it, uh, how, how does something like, I know that, that Robert, uh, I, you know, had the initial idea as far as I understand maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but then where, where does it go from there? If, if you're, um, you know, if you have that kind of structure in, in the company. Uh, it takes a long time to make a game. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, no, I mean, uh, so this is something that like we've, we've talked about before, I think, but um, mm-hmm. You know, we spent like five or six years uh, developing the game with probably like three or four years of like really intensive active development. Mm-hmm. And um, the game is very big, um, but it also took a long time because we had to um, kind of like figure out those processes as we were going because most of us also didn't have any software development experience. Um, wow. But, uh, you know, a lot of it, you know, I I would say that like there is a lot in the game, and a lot of it was produced um, like very quickly under like various circumstances. Yeah. Um, but it was also a game that like we've all um, like it's a game that has benefited from everyone taking a lot of time with everything that they were kind mm-hmm. of involved on. Um, so to take like one example from the writing, um, like most of the dialogues in the game were written relatively quickly, um, but many of them were like redrafted or rewritten um, like multiple times. Um, So the whole game kind of has this like palimpsest quality where um, it's still like, it was very important to us as writers for the game to sound like, um, for it to obviously like sound um, smart and and interesting, but not like belabored, you know? Yeah. and so the way that we got that is by like forcing the writers to like draft very quickly. And like part of that, we just had to do it because there were only so many writers and so much mm-hmm. dialogue to write. Yeah. Um, but then the other, um, one of the other things that we have to do is, um, you know, like every writer um, like writes a lot, but then they also like read and edit and sometimes rewrite other dialogues. Um, so there's like almost nothing in the game that hasn't been touched by like two or three different hands. Um, and that, you know, is, um, a very like labor intensive process and Mm -hmm. takes a very long time. Um, but it's sort of, you know, uh, you guys talked to, um, Greg Kasavin, the like Hades guy and Mm -hmm. like one of your earlier podcasts. And he talked about, um, the importance of like making room for the dumb stuff. Yes. uh, In games like that's, like I, I think it's like absolutely the same with like Disco Elysium, um, how so much of like the magic of the game is in those little like micro reactive moments, um, which, you know, you might think of a, a few like when you're first drafting something, but they really only come to you on like the third or fourth or fifth 
pass mm-hmm. at something. Yeah. And, and it's interesting too, because like what, and I see the parallels here now that you're talking about Hades writing and that of discos, uh, because it is dense and these moments, um, they're going to be different for everybody. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and even as a writer, you're probably not thinking this one's going to be the memorable thing yeah, that people totally. take away and talk about. Yeah. So that's, that's super interesting. In that it's, same yeah. kind of vein. The, the protagonist of Disco Elysium, he's not like a likable guy, but there's like those little kind of like dumb things that like Greg talked about and that you just mentioned there that kind of like endear you to this rough around the edges character a bit more. Yeah. I think, um, you know, so I guess I have like two thoughts. Um, the first is that like one of our, um, you know, we've talked or like Robert, I know has talked a lot about the influence of like tabletop RPGs on our game. And mm-hmm. so even though the game is definitely uh, like in the lineage of like Fallout and Planescape Torment and um, Icewind Dale and Baldur's Gate and all of these kind of classic isometric RPGs, um, like from a kind of mechanical and like storytelling standpoint, like we also thought a lot about the experience of like a tabletop RPG and especially like having a good DM there. And so, you know, when, um, like, I think a special thing about Disco's writing is that we do have a narrator who is like very present because in a way he's like actually just a reflection of Harry's um, subconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, and that narrator uh like sometimes takes the role of like a very good DM and like many of those little like micro reactive moments, which, um, you know, which I kind of like create those uh, special, special moments for players um, are for me, like those are the sorts of things that like a very good DM who's been playing with you the whole campaign and like remembers little things your character did and said Mm -hmm. um, would do. Um, and that, that's just something that like other, you know, CRPGs like haven't really, um, haven't really explored. Um, the other thing, which is like to what you were saying, Alyssa, about Harry's character, um, is that, you know, something that, um, was important to us and that's sort of our like response to, or like riff on, um, classic CRPGs is that, um, you know, in a game like, uh, Baldur's Gate or Fallout or whatever, your character is both someone and like nobody at all. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you start out as um, the chosen one or the courier or um, the last survivor or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But that person's like psychic makeup is kind of a blank slate for you, the player to do what you want with. Right. Um, And we wanted to tell a different kind of story where like you are both nobody like Harry is just, a random detective with the RCM. Um, but he is also very definitely somebody and you feel that, um, you know, when you play as him, uh, and it's, you know, we wanted that to be like, we want players to feel as attached to Harry as they do any of the other characters in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, which is something that we often, or at least I often miss from, uh, other RPGs. Yeah. Um, when you approach a character like Harry, who's kind of like half a blank slate, but has this kind of like established character that you uncover throughout as you play, um, how do you write that in a way that gives players to kind of put their own, give player, gives players the opportunity to still put their own like 
idea of who this person is on top of this while still feeding them nuggets of like his actual background mm-hmm. and letting them mm-hmm. kind of mold their own opinions around those. Yeah, I think um, what's important is that Harry um, isn't quite a blank slate. Like he has a very definite backstory and very definite things that happen to him. And so like the choice that you make as a player is not um, who Harry is or like what he's done in the past. Um, but you do get to decide in very profound ways, like what that means to you. Mm -hmm. Um, so like, you know, you, um, some players, some of my, my favorite, most eccentric players, um, will try to go through the whole game and learn as little about their past as they possibly can. Um, you know, there are people who like make it through the game without actually confirming that their name is Harry or like without (laughs) ever like getting their character portrait from like looking in the mirror or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and the game like allows for that. Um, and then there are other people for whom, you know, they're sort of, um, they're really like two detective stories going on in the game, right? There's like the case of the hanged man and then the case of Harry and what happened to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a lot of players, like that second case, like the Harry case is as or even more important than like the actual plot of the game. Um, uh, so it's, you know, we as, of like all the writers on the team, like we know Harry's story like pretty thoroughly. Um, but we try to find lots of opportunities for players to um, decide what that story means to them. Um, and like, hopefully those choices are, are themselves like rich and meaningful for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, did you go about uh, establishing who Harry is? Um, just have like a big, you know, like lore document or like character document? Uh, man, that's a good question. We have some pretty extensive lore documents um, or like world building documents for various parts of the setting, but I don't think there's one for Harry. I think it's just... Um, that's mysterious. <laughs> yeah, I think you just know, man, like you spend enough time with him, like you start mm-hmm. to gather. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's actually that way with like a couple of major characters. Like there's no... I don't think there's any document with like all of Kim's information in it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just, you know, part of, um, I think like part of the magic of the studio is that like everyone who's in it is like so deep in it um, Mm -hmm. that like we can like all talk casually about like what Kim or Harry are like, or like what they would or wouldn't do or say. And um, you know, there's some disagreement around the edges sometimes like, um, like we had a, uh, while writing the final cut, we had a, a kind of intense argument in the writer's chat about, uh, what kind of cologne Kim would wear if he wears cologne at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, like, it's just, you know, these characters are like so vivid and so well-drawn and that you can just like say right off the bat, like, yeah, that sounds like Kim or Harry or no, it doesn't. Does Kim wear cologne? He does. Um, is that the final, the final cut, cut spoiler? You can, yeah, you can find out what kind of cologne it is. Mm, good pitch. I'm curious about voice acting because I mm-hmm. is writing for... Okay, let me rewind here. In Disco Elysium itself, some lines are have voice acting to them and some are just text on a screen. Um, mm-hmm. Is writing the dialogue for those different kinds of methods of digestion, I guess, different? Mm-hmm. Does that feed into your process at all? Um, not, 
I, I don't think it makes a big difference because like even like whether a player has the um the VO turned on or off, like this is true um, in the original game as well. Mm-hmm. Um you like we wanted players who were just reading to like, you know, the the voiced greetings like shouldn't feel qualitatively different from any of like the main branches of a character that aren't voiced. Mm-hmm. Um so we you know we were very careful to write um knowing that many lines might be voiced. Um, and there are some kind of like very particular things that we had to take care with to make sure that like, um, you know, if this, uh, if like half of this line is voiced that, you know, we're, we're careful with like how, um, aggressively like the narrator's voice like intervenes at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, no, I think the whole game is like quite, even if it's, um, even if it like wasn't all written to be voiced originally, like it is a, um, a kind of writing that like begs to be like read out loud, even if it's just in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it all like works quite nicely. Um, it it does have that, like that, um, e- even without the, even without the, uh, the voice acting right now, the, you, you feel like you're like mind melding, like eh, with the, uh, you know, with the voice and, mm-hmm. uh, it makes you feel, um, so yeah, it, what would you call Harry likable? It's like, maybe not, but you empathize with his character, like, very deeply, you know? Mm-hmm. Is that um, something that you kept in mind when writing all these this, these parts and these characters, uh, player em- em- empathizing with the lead character to that level? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the game, you know, this is a game that, like, takes up some pretty, like, heavy and often dark themes and questions. Um, But it's like also important that the player feel that they are having like very genuine interactions with genuine characters. And, you know, our take is that like, if a player feels like they are having like a meaningful conversation, they're going to kind of like, it's not going to matter whether that person, like whether they like that person or whether they seem Mm -hmm. like an asshole or not or whatever. Um, and as writers, like we take our characters like very, very seriously. Like we, like one thing that's, um, very important to us is that every character, even like the kind of secondary and tertiary characters have like different levels to them. And not every player is going to see all of those levels on every playthrough because of, you know, various choices that they make. Um, but you should always feel like there is more to, each of these characters than just like the plot function that they're serving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when we're fleshing out characters, it's, it's always very important to us to be able to say like, okay, what is the, like, what are the secrets that this character has? Or like, what are the, you know, in a way, like what's the, the reward that you as a player are going to experience for like taking the time to get to know and understand this person. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that reward is, is usually just like a meaningful, like a moment of like human connection or understanding between them. It's not like, you know, you get a new sword or some stuff. Yeah, like ding, level up or <laughs> anything like that, which which is why I'm so uh, like it, it, it relies on dialogue as the mechanic, uh, which I think is why it resonated with with so many people instead of, you know, the, you know, the. Uh, the, the fake structure of reward or the extrinsic rewards. It's, it's all, you get rewarded 
with story, story yeah. and characters. You get, you know, invest in them and then you'll get more of it. So I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the hope. Um, uh, kind of building off of that a little bit, I'm going to pull from a question in chat. Yeah. Um, Hannah has brought up, um, wants to know what steps you usually take when it comes to creating the characters in your world. Oh man, that's a good one. Um, you know, it depends on the characters. Like there are some characters in the game who's um, like, we know this character exists because they serve some important plot function. Um, and then there are other characters that, you know, we knew we wanted to write in because we wanted to have some, um, you know, somebody who like embodies or represents um, some certain like idea or concept. Mm -hmm. um, some characters are like jokes, frankly, <laughs> um, like a certain gentleman that you might meet in a shipping container. Uh, you know, others. A very dangerous chair. Yeah, right. There's a very dangerous <laughs> chair, um, who's who I don't think is actually a character, but feels like a character for sure. He hurt me like a character would. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and then there are other characters who are, um, you know, just like figures that we um, wanted to like fill up this world. Like, you know, it's very, the, like the map in Disco Elysium is not very big, mm -hmm. um, but it is... Uh, like I, I think of the world as like not especially broad the way that like a typical like open world RPG is, but it is deep. Like there are many reasons to go back and forth and like little threads that connect the different characters and different pieces of the world. And so um, some characters exist um, to kind of fill in that texture or make the world feel like appropriately dense, you know? Um, and then you know, so with um, with the final cut, we've added a couple of new characters and some of those, and they kind of like fall into a few of these categories. Like some are um, figures that we wanted because we felt like they um, kind of like filled in a little gap that existed in the original game in the kind of like tapestry of people and ideas that we've made. Mm -hmm. um, and then others are, um, you know, there's like one character in particular that... Um, will be very difficult to find in some characters or many, many players will like not see at all. Um, but who is sort of a, um, uh, a representative of like one of the kind of political forces in the world that, uh, um, that we also felt was like missing from the original game. Um, building, I guess, off of the vast array of characters that you guys include in your game. Um, stealing another question from chat, Edward wants to know, uh, the game encompasses so many viewpoints. I'm guessing there was a significant chunk of research done. Did you have a litmus test for when you were ready to write something from another perspective? Did you have people or groups you checked with for authenticity slash honesty for those different perspectives throughout the game? Um, that's a very good question. So, I mean, I think... You know, speaking, so the first half of that question is about the kind of, um, writing like from different perspectives. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, and then also about the kind of like political or like ideological dimensions to the game. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, a lot of us on the writing team are like, you know, we, we don't just play games. We read a lot, um, novels, politics, history, mm -hmm. um, all that. And like part of you know, part of uh, writing from not just like the point of views of different characters, but from like different worldviews or whatever um, does require you to 
um, to like read a lot and be curious and to, to like actually sit and think with, and to, to like sit and kind of stew in those ideas, mm-hmm. um, before you, you understand them. Um, so like for, you know, I had a, a lot of back and forth with Helen, one of the other writers, um, over a certain character in the final cut who, um, you know, as I alluded to earlier, is like a representative of one of the major ideologies in the game. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, wrote my first pass of this character and like thought it was pretty good. And um, Helen came back and said, um, you know, this is good, but this is, you're writing about, you're writing this character from this other ideal ideology's vantage point, And like, you need to get at it from, you need to be writing from that character's perspective or from that from that worldview so that it doesn't seem, um, you know, uh, like satirical somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like very, very good advice. Um, and that's something that, you know, we're, um, like constantly thinking about and, um, and working on, um, as for like these questions about like authenticity and different, um, writing characters of different backgrounds or viewpoints, um, you know, I think the measure is always like, does it feel true and does it feel real? Um, and we have a very good team of like very, very thoughtful writers. Um, and, you know, we all like, we we do our work and we do our research um, and we are like very honest with each other about like when we think um, we've gotten it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah. feedback cycle sounds very important. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no, but you couldn't write a game like this at, you know, that asks so much of the players and so much of the writers who are writing it. um, If you like, don't have that like very intense kind of trust Mm -hmm. and dedication. Mm -hmm. And and it sounds like, you know, your, your writing team in itself, you have different vantage points built in, you know, to that, to your group uh, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, we, you know, we write this game for, um, you know, we have an audience, we have players and we are, um, obviously like very grateful and appreciative for them. Um, but in some ways, like this is also a a thing that we make like for one another. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, when I'm, uh, like writing a new character, like my first order concern is not like, you know, are, are, is like this massive player is going to like this, but like, are my yeah. friends at the studio going to like it? Yeah. And that's interesting. Like I, I, I follow, um, you know, I, and, and I listen to comedians, for example, talking about, uh, you know, how they write. And I, I always hear that from writing teams, like uh, with a comedian, can I make, you know, my hilarious, you know, fellow comedian who is on my level, like laugh. And then just kind of like they feed off of each other in that, mm-hmm. um, in that writing room. And, uh, you know, if you can make the people around you uh, think and and make an impression on them, certainly someone's going to feel it on the outside, too. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think that's um, at least like from my experience, like that's the best measure of like whether something is good or not. Yeah. Um, I do want to ask, too, about, you know, go back to to Harry for a second. And you mentioned like, you know, the game obviously deals with some heavy topics um and he is an addict you know he's an an alcoholic uh what 
uh, what, what's it like? And, and, and someone that you can like, it's like, it, it's, it's bleak. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel like it's, you know, it's treated with respect. It's, you're not like, there's not a writer that's making fun of, you know, addiction or anything like that. It's, it's like real. Um, how did you navigate that? Well, a lot of us are writing out of our own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I mean, that's, you know, when I say that, um, you know, this game like takes up some like heavy or rough subjects, um, you know, even though the game is grotesque, it's like comedic at times, um, that grotesquery or that comedy like comes out of that experience. It's not something that, um, you know, it's not somebody on the outside, like, you know, kind of gawking at like what a messy alcoholic or drug Mm -hmm. addict or depressive looks like. Um, And, you know, uh, to be like totally frank, like writing these, like some of these dialogues, like takes a lot out of you. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but, but I think another thing that's important is that you treat these things, part of treating these subjects with like a fullness of humanity is to not only treat them as like, um, kind of like untouchably or unquestionably dark subjects, like, you know, um, speaking about like some of Harry's like, uh, kind of like self-involved depressive spirals, for instance, um, there are some like darkly funny moments in there. Um, and that's because like part of the experience of being a, a depressive or being in one of those troughs is like feeling like you're seeing the world in a different way that sometimes is quite funny. Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, same with, uh, you know, like writing out of, uh, you know, addiction or alcoholism. Um, sometimes the world like can look pretty fun and funny to you when you're, uh, when you're drunk all the time. Mm -hmm. And we like wanted the game to, to like capture that as well. Um, you know, the game, like, I, I think this is an issue that I have with a lot of, uh, the way RPGs like treat substances, mm-hmm. like as like in most games, like there's no reason for you to ever take a drink or like do a drug. Like it's, <laughs> you're like in Skyrim, you have wine and it makes things blurry. For, for yeah. Like right. right, right. It's, it's a minor like, stat boost. <laughs> that doesn't, um, that doesn't like capture why people are compelled to drink. <laughs> um, and so it was important to us to like, uh, to represent that a little more fully. Yeah. There was like, uh, what's like fallout or whatever. One of the drugs in like fallout three, I'd just be like, this one makes me fight good. So I'm just going to like pound those into me all the time. And just, I'll take the negative stat boost. It gives me later, but with like yeah, disco totally. Elysium, I struggled throughout. I'm like, I want, I'm going to help Harry clean up his life. That's how I want to play the characters. I want this person to be happy and he's had a bad time, but I want to get mm-hmm. him out of that. And then throughout having like his addiction kind of like come in, come back into play and always be kind of like in the mm-hmm. forefront of like, Oh, you can smoke a cigarette. Oh, you can go buy alcohol. You probably shouldn't. This little voice in your head tells you you shouldn't, but you could and kind of making that more of like telling you, you definitely should. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, can we talk about like the writing the different voices? Cause you write Harry as a character, but inside Mm -hmm. all those skills that you can choose as a player have voices that kind of like are in the back of his head, informing, like suggesting Mm -hmm. decisions based on their own personal biases. Can you talk Mm -hmm. about, I guess, writing all of those different 
voices or just having all these different options that players can kind of listen to yeah. along the way? Yeah. Um, I would say for me personally, like internalizing the voices of the different skills, because there are 16 or 24 of them, I can't remember. <laughs> um, there are a lot of them. Um, and they, each of those voices sounds a little bit different, even though each of them is also a part of Harry's own voice, um, mm -hmm. which is also the voice of the narrator. So there's a very kind of delicate kind of three-way triangulation that you have to do as a writer to get those right. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it's important to us that no matter what, um, like no matter what build you go with as a player or like which of the, the three archetypes you choose at the beginning, that you're going to have a kind of rich experience, like mm -hmm. with these voices, um, it's like, you do have a, a party, um, which is Kim, um, mm -hmm. but really like the skills are your party members. Like mm -hmm. if you're just thinking in terms of like a traditional RPG. And so, you know, this is the skills are the way that we do like RPG party banter. Um, and so it's, it's important to us that the skills both sound distinct and like have kind of interesting and distinct uh, perspectives on any given situation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it's not just a thing where like, maxing out skills is good because they will always make you better at things. Um, there are like many places where some skills, if they are, some skills are the wrong skills, frankly, and they mm -hmm. will give you the wrong advice for that situation. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that is like part of navigating the game is that you like, you know, like being a person in the world, you like can't always listen to what your own brain is telling you yeah. and like learning to be a high functioning um, or successful or like good person is also learning like, when to like ignore certain parts of your brain mm -hmm. and it's not always the same parts of your brain in any given situation. Yeah, there's like the, yeah. the banter between different voices where they'll kind of like argue about like, no, he should definitely do this. And yeah, yeah. it's that kind of like not listening to the, the small voice in the back of your head telling you bad things. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to bring up, cause you kind of are touching on it. Um, your approach to, uh, and your team's approach to choice and consequence. Um, mm -hmm. It's subtle, you know, it's, it's not, I remember there was this discussion like years ago uh, about how games are starting to handle choice. And it, it's like, do this clearly evil thing, uh, or, you know, kill, kill the puppy or, you know, don't kill the puppy, save the puppy. Um, so, but this if is more subtle. You might get some dope armor, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't forget about the dope armor, the, the, uh, the reward. <laughs> and uh yeah, so it's more subtle in disco. It's like how we make decisions, even subconsciously, like on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. Um, how did it, you know? Just can you just talk about how you approach yeah, choice totally. and consequence here. Yeah, so this like goes back um, to, to something that I was talking about earlier about like you know in disco you are both like nobody and somebody, mm -hmm. like very definitely in particular. Um, and something that like one of my favorite parts about the game is that you are not, you know, this is not like, um, say like a classic fallout game where you, um, venture out into the world and you find that like all of the other forces in the world are in like perfect stasis with one another. Mm -hmm. And it's just waiting for like you 
Lone Survivor or Courier or Vault Dweller or whoever to like destabilize that um, political situation, like for your own benefit. Um, You know, it's not like the kind of model there is like um, the movie Yojimbo, right? The kind of like classic Kurosawa samurai movie um, where like you have like multiple forces that you can like play off against each other. But um, no matter what, you are like the indispensable figure. Um, And in disco, it's important to us to, and and just like as like a point of realism and honesty, um, like spoiler, Harry is not going to like completely change the like political balance of power in the Mm -hmm. world. Um, He is not going to like, uh, murder the heads of the various like political factions and install himself as like the ruler of Martinez. Um, and there's no like, um, you know, we are, we are very clear about like what the bounds of your agency represent. Um, and, and for us, that's because, you know, this is a, we take the politics of our game seriously. And this is also like a point about agency in the real world that like at any given point, like, you only have so much agency to like change the material circumstances of the world you live in. But what you do have very profound control over is what that world represents to you. And so, you know, we don't give the player the opportunity to like completely reconfigure the world to their whims and either like save it or destroy it or whatever. Um, But we do give players um, like a really remarkable amount of control over deciding like what they think, like where they find meaning in the world. Um, and whether that is like Alyssa was saying earlier in like cleaning up your life and like focusing on the case and like trying to be a good person this time, or whether that's like seeking out the kind of like, weirder and more metaphysical parts of the world. Um, or whether it's like, um, you know, trying to find like a new balance of like, like doing fun, weird stuff while also like trying not to succumb to your like darker impulses. Um, but it's, it's not like it's the, the kind of fundamental question of the game is like, not um, what do you want to do to the world? But like, what kind of person do you want to be? Yeah. I love that explanation. It's, it, I, I think that's one of the, the reasons that, I, you know, that I like it and, I, and a lot of people like disco so much because it's super, the, the lead character is super self-aware and always in his own, he's always in his own head, like constantly. And that's, I feel like that's something that a lot of people can relate to. And what you had just said about only having control over a certain amount of things, like you can't control, like, you, you, you know, all the big stuff that's happening, um, but you can, you can work on yourself is something, you know, the, this game came out before like coronavirus and all this, you know, other shit, you know, is going on. And that's something it feels like a lesson that, you know, we can all work on. So it's anyway. definitely <laughs> unique in that way where when you were talking yeah, about like, you're not going to take over, like deceit the leaders of these horrible factions and take over their place. Like I definitely tried to do that. Like I was waiting for my chance to like, all right, now's my chance to fix everything. And then the game kind of teaches you just through these character moments that like, no, that's not what you're, that's not who you are or what you're here to do.
Exola is the world's leading video game commerce company with a robust and powerful set of tools and services designed specifically for the game industry. Exola works with major game companies including Valve, Twitch, Roblox, Ubisoft, Epic Games, Take-Two, NetEase, and more. Exola recently introduced the Exola Web Shop for Mobile Games, a package of tools and services from the company that can help mobile game developers take advantage of recent seismic shifts in the game industry and make up to 40% more revenue. You can find out more by visiting exola.com, that's X-S-O-L-L-A, and by watching our Q&A with Exola President Chris Hewish at www.gamedeveloper.com slash business slash Exola webshop. Uh, I'm going to go to chat. I'm going to, do you have one that you want? Because I have one that I want out of chat. Oh, you go ahead. It might be the same one. Uh, is it about dialogue systems? Yes, because yes. I was actually going to ask that myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so interactive dialogue is a complicated beast. Um, Zayad in chat wants to know, how did you guys work on implementing such a massive dialogue system? I'm assuming it wasn't in Twine. Um, no, it wasn't Twine. So we used um, a program called Artisy, um for Disco, which is kind of like... Um, Twine's much more complicated, like older sibling. Um, so it is um, it is immensely complicated. I wish I could show you like screenshots of my Artisy folders because it's you know <laughs> I, the the kind of um, I don't know. I've I've been thinking of it as like a kind of rhetoric of like branching dialogue systems. This is sort of like one of my hobby horses right now. Is like thinking about um, how we structure branching dialogues and like what those, what the kind of like rhetorical and aesthetic functions of those different structures are. Mm -hmm. Um, Because like in a traditional game you have like, or a traditional RPG, you know, you'll have like the greeting, which kind of goes like this, and then you'll get to a main hub, which is like the, the bank of a phone tree, you know, where kind of, goes like this and then each of those branches eventually brings you back to that hub right um but there are, beyond that like basic structure there are lots of um kind of like interesting things you can do that we discovered um that you know if you were to just like map it out um visually you'd say like that looks weird like that kind of looks like it would be bad or unpleasant to play like um like you might come to a hub with four or five options and four of those five options might just loop you back to the hub and only one takes you forward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that would look, that would seem kind of stupid if you just saw it. Um, but we actually like found like that was an incredible way to like create certain character moments. Um, like when you first meet Kim Katsuragi and um, he asks if you've gotten the body out of the tree yet. And um, you have five or six options. Um, only one of which is, no, I haven't gotten the body out of the tree. <laughs> um, and sort of like the more you as a player kind of like put it off, the more like excruciatingly awkward that instant becomes. And yeah. it's sort of, um, <laughs> you know, that's like one of the subtle ways we allowed, you know, we found a way to use the kind of structure of these branching dialogue systems to allow the player to kind of like express something about their character. Like, how how awkward are they willing to get a situation or let a situation get before they like tell the truth? 
<laughs> is that like a wish list item you guys had in your head when you went towards this tool? Or is that something like you found a tool that kind of works, and then you're like, actually, this would kind of make a cool system if we did this with it? Uh, no, this is, I, I think most of the stuff came out of just our playing around in the system. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I don't think there are that many tools out there that can create these sort of dialogue systems at the level of sophistication that we needed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to say, that, like, um, like I said earlier, like, none of us had ever written an RPG before. Like, we've played lots of them, but um, this was sort of, you know, a good way to think of the writing team is as, like, a bunch of um, people who are, like, lifetime, lifetime fans of RPGs, um, mm-hmm. but who became writers or poets or various other things, um, kind of getting to dive in and, like, see, like, if we were making a game from scratch, like, what could we really do with it? Um, so from that perspective, when you guys take on something like interact, like an interactive game where you have all these choices and your players might not see all this dialogue, um, I guess, how in your process do you go through and make sure that those, like, vital uh, moving the story forward beats are accounted for no matter which choice players make or which way they stat or who they talk to? Um, that is like one of the hardest parts of designing a game like this. Um, because, you know, like I said, there are players who can get through the entire game and like resolutely refuse to know that their name is Harry <laughs> or to like, um, you know, I, I didn't even realize this was possible until a couple months ago when um, uh, Argo, one of the other writers, informed me that you can finish the game without ever getting the body out of the tree. Um, and so, Great way to solve a murder. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Best left unsolved. Yeah. yeah, you know, the real the real mystery was the friends we met along the way or whatever. Um, um uh, I, sorry, go the, ahead, I keep talking over you. The um the hardest part of, of the design work is like accounting for all of these contingencies. And um sometimes you'll be like you'll think you have a very solid draft of a character or a scene, and then someone will go like, but well, what if they haven't done this other thing? You'd be like fuck, I didn't know anyone could not do that. Like, why would they not do that? And you'd be like, well, because they didn't want to, man. Like, you got to deal with it. That has to be like a <laughs> weekly conversation when you're going through this process, right? It'd be like, wait, what? That can, that can happen? <laughs> well, and it's something that like, that that bites you very, even very late into the design and implementation process. Or like sometimes, you know, you'll be like, the, the VO team will be saying like, okay, we need final scripts. And then someone will be like, oh man, we forgot. Like what happens if they go into the apartment building from the left door and not the right door? <laughs> That's um, fun. <laughs> I have one more question on interactivity and then I'll let Chris open it up to the chat again. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, I'm no, no, go, but, go, go. Yeah. Um, so I did an interview for Gamma a while ago um, with the developers uh, behind Baldur's Gate 3. And mm-hmm. I really i love dice roll mechanics because there's so many different ways that things can go and you can kind of like gate people out of things with this like this element of chaos but it doesn't always feel unearned and sometimes it just feels like life Mm -hmm. um how do you go about from a narrative perspective handling those random aspects and like maybe fail like rolling a critical fail to like open a door or something like that when other players might get through there how do you narratively navigate that um i mean it's sort of a very like one of the most like delicate decisions you can make when you're designing these is just saying like, where is a white check going to appear and where is like a red check going to appear? Like the, the red checks being the ones that you can't retry and the white ones being something you might try three or four or five times before you get it. Um, you know, it's very, 
it's not like this is a place where it kind of diverges from, say, like tabletop D&D, where like at any given point, the DM could be like, well, I don't know if you can do that. Why don't you like roll agility and see if you do it? Um, and so like we we have to be kind of strategic about where we put these moments because mm-hmm. like a white check, for instance, if you fail it, is always going to like break the kind of narrative momentum. And so you need to, to like design that moment in such a way that um, the failure that basically says you probably need to go do something else for a while before you can come back and do this mm-hmm. um, still feels like you've reached a satisfying pause in that um, conversation or that you feel like, you know, sometimes you might know exactly what you need to do to like go and reopen that white check. And sometimes you might be like, well, I, I can't do anything else in the Doom commercial area today. Like we're going to go, um, you know, sing karaoke instead. Um, um, we're having those two different levels of checks. Was that always part of the plan? Did you guys just from day one know this is how you want to do that? Or is that kind of accounting for allowing for randomness without getting people out all the time? Uh, that's a good question. That the, the white and red check system was already in the game um, when I joined the team. Mm-hmm. Um, so from my vantage point, that's always been there. And it's so fundamental to the design. I think that must have been something that we figured out pretty early. Um, but there are other... You know, there's like one or two other kinds of checks as well, and those are those um, passive checks, which determine like when or how often certain skills like speak to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's another, you know, that's sort of like another kind of um, narrative lever that we have to um, kind of like shape the player's experience of, of any given scene. Thank you for indulging mm-hmm. me. I love I love anything with like narrative and randomness and kind of getting these like. Not everyone's going to see this thing, and yeah, it's just it's yeah. fun. Alyssa might make her own dice. Um, <laughs> I might also. make my own dice. I might be in multiple D and D campaigns and be DMing one. Who can be sure? <laughs> yeah, one of my um, one of my favorite lines in the game is one that I think um, Helen wrote, which is something that our novelty dice maker says, which is like there's something inherently violent about dice rolls and the way that they like open up some worlds, but also like foreclose others. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, that's something that we that's sort of a, a kind of intellectual or aesthetic uh, lodestar for us on the writing team. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go to chat real quick. Um, this uh, is just flying by. We've only got nine minutes left, so we'll try to get some, some questions in here. Um, Tremaine. Hey, Tremaine. Tremaine has been hanging out with us all week. We're pretty much all, all family now. Um, do you try to stay away from character tropes in preference of making characters unique or do you prefer to take a basic trope and build a unique character around that? Uh, I think that depends on the characters themselves and sort of what are, you know, we never, we never want to write someone who is just an embodiment of a, of a trope. Like that's not mm-hmm. really interesting to us. Um, but we do like to play with tropes in sort of self-aware, self-critical ways. Um, you know, it, it kind of, it goes back to that question earlier about um, like, what are the kind of multiple levels to each character? And, you know, it's, it's fine if somebody starts out seeming one way and then like winds up being something else. Like that's actually a very powerful way to use, you know, tropes or archetypes or whatever. Um, but it, you know, what I, the impression, the first impression a character makes is obviously important but that is much less important than like how your relationship with them develops. 
if it never moves beyond the level of an archetype or a trope, then like that's not very interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with, with another, uh, another one here, um, from, I'm sorry, I'm pronouncing names wrong, but, uh, Gail, um, do you ever feel the need to refrain yourself from telling too much about your character, like their past, their personality, um, you know, to actually let, let leave room for the gamer to have their own vision and motives for the character? Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think something that makes Elysium as a setting and Disco Elysium as a game uh, interesting is that there is like a level of particularity to um, to both the world and to like many of the characters that um, is very important to us. And it's sort of, you know, it's sort of like a paradoxical thing where like sometimes the more particular a character appears, like also the more universally relatable they become. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, like as a writer, you, you do need to be um, conscious of like when you are, you know, overusing exposition or like the characters um, just kind of like announcing their their motivations or telling you about themselves without a real like narrative purpose. Like that's not, you know, that that's something that you should try to avoid. Um, but it's the, the particular details that like make characters interesting or that make people interesting. And so we always want to feel that like, you know, we always want you to feel like you were talking to a real person who has depth beyond the conversation that you're having with them. How do you handle like character development? Because that's, that's one of the things in games I think is so lacking uh, because it's, it's difficult. Whereas in disco, you see, you know, the path of the character, how, how do you handle character development? Well, I think when we, when we sit down to write a character, it's not, you know, it's like I was saying earlier, like a character is always more than just their plot function. Mm -hmm. So it's a character always has something, even if, like, say, for example, um, there is somebody you have to talk to in order to open a certain door that gets you into like a, a narratively significant area of the game. Um, the narrative function of that character might be to open the door, but you should have like many other reasons to speak with that character and reasons to keep speaking with them even after they've opened that door. Um, and so this, you know, I talked earlier about um, the world of Disco having great depth, even if it's not, even if like the map in Disco Elysium itself is not particularly broad. And um, one of the ways you achieve that is by um, having like many reasons to go back and talk to people over and over so that, you know, somebody you might meet on the first day of the game but you still have things that you want to talk to them about on day four or five. And like yeah. the nature of your relationship over those four or five days is going to be quite different. I'm not sure how much uh, you were involved in creating uh, Kuno, uh, but someone's asking, how did, uh, how did Kuno come into existence? Um, man, as far as I know, Kuno sprang fully formed from the head of Argo, one of our writers. Um, I like it. All I can say is that I adore Kuno and um, I, I wish I had gotten to write some of him. <laughs> um, but I, th I think he's like a perfect example of somebody that you um, very much, you think he is one kind of character when you first meet him. Yeah. Um, but there are just like many, many depths to Kuno um, that like a diligent player will unlock. Um, 
but even if you don't kind of even if you don't get the maximum amount of kuno that you possibly can um you still um, the maximum guy. amount of kuno yeah. <laughs> you start at the maximum amount of kuno i think <laughs> um yeah no he's um he's an icon that's all i can say about kuno <laughs> i mean i think the challenge for you as a writer is to write that character, even if their ideas or their belief systems are like completely orthogonal to your own, um, you have to like get as much into that worldview as you can and then like write outward from that. Um, you know, don't, if it, if you, if it seems like a kind of foreign and unapproachable concept for you, like it's going to feel that way for the player as well. Linear writing, uh, what was your approach to learning and thinking about adding choice into narrative? Did it feel like learning in a uh, completely different type of writing? Um, no, for me, it felt extremely natural. Like I, you know, I'd grown up playing these um, kind of like interplay RPG classics. And then I sort of moved away from that and tried to be like a serious literary man for like a large part of my 20s. And then um, coming back to this was sort of like coming home and realizing like, ah, there was actually a part of my brain that was not well suited to writing, um, you know, traditional linear short stories or novels or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but that is like extremely well developed in doing this one very specific thing. And you found it. You found the one specific thing. So, seventeen seconds. Do one, one more. more. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to do that to the, the kind of people running the stream. Yeah. Oh, geez. Um, thanks so much for for joining us, Justin. Like, just was so uh, so great. Love uh, your work. I hope that you've got. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward. I mean, it's your first. Uh, you know, your first release and to be a part of um, a, a team that has done something like this that is going to influence uh, games, you know, in the future is inspiring to, you know, to me and, and to people who are in chat who might not even, you know, have released a game yet. So, um, yeah, you set, you set the bar high for debuts. So. <laughs> uh, no, it's been a, a huge pleasure and honor. And um, thanks for having me on. <laughs>